COVID-19 has been devastating for everyone, but in the United States, there's one demographic hit particularly hard, Latinos. According to the California Department of Public Health, Latinos make up about 39% of the state's population, but nearly half of all cases and 45% of all deaths. COVID preyed on a perfect storm of factors that made Latinos especially vulnerable to the pandemic. Multi-generational households, crowded neighborhoods, essential jobs that required us to show up in person, vaccine hesitancy among too many. All of this made COVID's toll personal for nearly every Latino I know. It goes beyond just getting the disease. In my own life, I've known family friends who have died from it, cousins who have been left incapacitated, or people who survived the coronavirus, but lost their jobs, their livelihoods, their sense of security. And the devastation continues. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Friday, January 14th, 2022. Late last year, my LA Times colleague, Alejandra Reyes Velarde, did a big series on how COVID-19 hit Latinos in California. She focused on families who have dealt with the pandemic in various ways. Alejandra, welcome to The Times. Thanks so much for having me. So one of the stories you focused on was on the Valenzuela family. Who are they? It's pizza. Mario Alarcón and Glenda Valenzuela are two immigrants. They met in the United States and kind of built their family together. They have three young boys. And they're kind of like every young immigrant family. They had aspirations to own a home one day, to become citizens one day, have decent education for their kids. And before the pandemic, they were kind of on their way to that. They were starting to make certain moves, like hiring an attorney to get their residency. They bought a brand new car. They were in a place where they could start making those moves and think about their future. So as they're striving, the pandemic hits them. How does it affect them? It affected them really kind of quickly and suddenly and really hard. It kind of seemed to me that within weeks of the shutdown, everything had changed for them. And these aspirations basically crumbled. And they went into survival mode. They went from being able to take their kids to McDonald's or Little Caesars or the movies every once in a while to literally kind of praying that some kind of income would come to them. They were both in the janitor or cleaner industry. With everything shut down, they pretty much completely lost their income. Their oldest son, Angel, he has autism. So he had specific needs, therapist appointments that he had to do now completely remotely. Daniel, he's six years old, of course, also had to do remote schooling. And because they were at home, that affected Glenda's ability to work. She suddenly had to be extremely attentive to all these online appointments and just had no possibility of working. Once in a while, like a client will call and they kind of see it as a sign of God that, you know, something came from the heavens to help them that week. There are weeks they don't have even milk or eggs or bread, kind of the basics. Mario talked to me about how he would 
like book flights for family members or do like little kind of uh, tasks for family members who maybe weren't so tech savvy. And they would give him 30, 50 bucks. And that's how they've been making it. I mean, I've heard it over and over again in different ways through different families. The impact has been so much more direct, so much faster. You know, other maybe like wealthier Americans have been able to adapt in ways that the immigrant community couldn't. Latinos ages 20 to 54 have died at a rate eight times higher than white people of the same age using statistics from the height of the pandemic. Another study I looked at said that Latinos have lost 370,000 years of potential life, which is a huge number that signifies that we're losing people younger than other demographics. I mean, we're losing people at an age where they're kind of in the prime of their lives and supposed to be the most productive when they're making these kind of moves for their future and establishing a foundation for the future of their kids. It's such a pivotal time. One family you profiled lost a father at a very young age, at 37, Sergio Ayala. Who was he? Yeah, Sergio was a young father of four. He worked at his brother-in-law's business, a pest control. He was the one who brought in the, you know, tortillas and egg, scrambled eggs in the morning, and he would leave them at people's desks. He was there first every single morning to greet everybody. They showed me his, like, boot stains were on the wall. He was such a beloved person in that office, and you could really feel it when I went to see them. In 2019, he started training to become a barber, and he had goals of owning his own business one day. And that's something he kind of actually kept to himself. He wanted to have a college savings fund for his kids. He was, like so many people his age, planning for the next step. He was such a great father. He cared about his kids so much, and he was so happy to have his new one-year-old boy at the time. Not only was he the main provider of his family, but he also was the kind of the caregiver in the sense that he got his girls ready for school every single morning, braided their hair, made them breakfast, took them to school. He was just there for them in, in every way. And of course, like the loss of any life is enormous. But also, the truth is we don't know how it's going to affect them in the future. Does this mean they might not have a college education? And that potential damage, I mean, that could have ripple effects across their lives, across generations. It has implications for maybe when they have families one day. It'll follow them for the rest of their lives. And the same is true for every young person we've lost during the pandemic. After the break, we'll hear from one of my colleagues, Brittany Mejia, about the loss of her beloved grandmother. Welcome back. 
Brittany Mejia is an LA Times Metro reporter and a friend of mine. She previously appeared on The Times to talk about the efforts to vaccinate working class Latinos, and she's done many, many stories about COVID-19. But around Christmas time, Brittany published her most personal story on the subject yet. How COVID-19 divided her family and took her grandmother. My grandma was the heart of our family. Every gathering we'd have, it was at my grandma's house. There was never another meeting point. It was always my grandma's house. Like, because, you know, our love and our family revolved around our grandma. Brittany, mi más sentido pésame to your family. My condolences about your grandma. The pictures that I saw of her that you would always post online is like the grandma from Coco like this. You could tell she's lived life, está chiquita with gray hair, but you could tell she was strong as hell. Uh, yes, that's exactly how I would describe it. I mean, she was short. She was like five two, five three, but she was just so tough. So she was born in 1925, born in Guadalajara, became a nurse, got married there, settled there. And then ended up actually starting over again, coming to the U.S., bringing five of her kids. You know, eventually she bought a house in Highland Park. You know, told my sister, like, this is the American dream, her house in Highland Park. My sister jokingly called it like a rehab center or a place, you know, when you're an orphan and you need somewhere to go or you need somewhere to land, that's where you go. The mantle in her living room is just packed with photos, like a living testament to all of her children and her grandchildren and like great-grandchildren. My grandma was the one getting me ready for school. She was the one giving us baths and taking care of us. And the memories I have there are of her, you know, making us food and us sitting on her bed, my sister Topaz and I, watching novelas, watching Sabado Gigante. There's so many of us who would drop in or would come by or would visit. And I think that really got limited once the pandemic started. I mean, it all happened so quickly. I had learned my uncle passed away and he was in Mexico and my family said it was dengue, you know, but then his wife ended up testing positive for COVID. It was scary. I, I don't know. I mean, it was scary for me too, especially because we had family members going back for the funeral and it was at a time where cases were going up. And so that was a huge fear for me. After that, it kind of just was a domino effect. Later, my grandpa had tested positive for COVID and he passed away. My cousin's husband worked in a warehouse and he tested positive and then they all got it. My mom's brother, her other brother, got sick in December and then was in the hospital and had to be intubated. You know, and, and I just kept learning about more and more people and it got to the point where I would be terrified to answer a phone call from family because I worried it was another person who had gotten COVID. It was very limited who was able to go see my grandmother. And it's always so strange to try to explain, especially in a Latino family, like why you can't hug someone or why you're, you know, like why you are wearing a mask still in the house or, you know, it's just awkward. And I think my grandmother toward the end also wasn't very mobile. So it was difficult. The main thing everyone really tried to do was just stay away. I remember asking my cousin for updates and asking if they needed anything. And she would send me pictures of my grandma because she was one of the few people who was going still. And I think my big thing was going out and reporting, you know, and especially in the situations I was putting myself in, like going to grocery stores, reporting in ICUs. I didn't want to risk getting my grandmother sick. I think that was a big fear of mine. I never wanted to be, you know, the reason that she got COVID. 
at one point last year, before Christmas, there was talk about having a Christmas party at my grandma's house, which I was like, what? I don't, we can't, know. we can't do that. And it, to me, was kind of a, a downplaying of what the situation was. And even when I kind of cited my uncle and my grandfather, I mean, there was a debate even in my own family that, about whether they had even had COVID. And so that was kind of a, a division that was created and led to kind of heated arguments. Even when it came to like the vaccines, there was such a misunderstanding about what was going on. And I think being on the front lines, it just got to be so frustrating having to continually explain that this was serious and saying, you know, we have to do everything to be careful and take precautions, even while other people just didn't really see it as like a big deal. What was their rationale? What did they say when you would tell them what you were seeing and reporting? I feel like most of the response when I would talk about things or I, I would tell stories was kind of just like a, it's going to be fine or we're okay. Nothing's happened to us and we're being safe. And even when my uncle wound up in the ICU and on a ventilator, I felt like in that moment, maybe that's what, what it was going to take, you know, to kind of, you know, drive this home as being serious. After he was getting better, he was pushing everyone to get vaccinated. And even still after that, there was kind of a dismissing. I felt like kind of a range of emotions because one part of me felt like I was seen as kind of the the jerk in the family for trying to continually bring this up, for flagging things that we should be doing differently. I mean, at one point I was told, you know, don't bug this person about wearing a mask because they were going to be in the house and had traveled. And you know, just just don't bring that up. Just don't say that right now. And it, it it was rough. I just felt bad. I felt like family members just really were annoyed with me and annoyed by me. And I hated that. Like my sister Topaz has been kind of just not, she's been against vaccines even before COVID. And we've had conversations about it and we haven't seen eye to eye on it or on COVID really. And like, I try to walk this line where I was trying to not be annoying, but at the same time trying to explain that I'm just worried and I don't want anyone to get sick and I didn't want anyone else to die. At what point did you realize that your grandmother was not going to get vaccinated? You know, I mean, she's she has dementia. She, she's in the care of others. And so it's not like she can really get up and go herself to do it. And so I, I remember hearing her talking about they were worried, I guess, that she was too old and too fragile to get the shot. Um, and they were worried about how her body was going to react. And so there was this very real fear, but one that I I felt like, I don't know. I mean, I just didn't agree. And, and we, and I don't know, it's just hard. It, it reaches a point where it's really difficult to try and convince somebody of something when they just have already made their minds up. After the break, Brittany Mejia's family decides to gather, perhaps for the last time. Welcome back. We last left Brittany as she was trying to navigate encouraging her family to take COVID seriously as they entered the holiday season of 2021. So for Thanksgiving, my parents had come into town and my uncle also had come into town and we're at my grandmother's house. And in this situation, I'd gotten several of the people who had, were going to my grandma's shots, but not everyone was vaccinated, including my grandmother. We were feeling more safe. We were lulled into this false sense of security at that point and thinking like, 
well, it's been this song, it's not going to happen to us, you know? And then after that, everyone started testing positive. Everybody, including my parents, tested positive. I ended up calling my uncle and by chance, actually, they were at urgent care with my grandmother. And, you know, she was having breathing issues and they were going to transfer her to the hospital. She had tested positive for COVID. It was a horrible feeling. I felt I felt like it was what we had all worried about and what we had all been dreading. And that was really difficult. I mean, calling my mom and telling her and just like hearing her cry, it was just horrible. I still feel guilty for having gone on Thanksgiving, like for that Thanksgiving weekend. I feel guilty for not having just said like, we shouldn't do it, like we just shouldn't meet up. And so I think everyone is gonna have their own guilt to carry, you know, as a result of that, like us getting together. I just think that we didn't think it was gonna happen to us. Gil, even though you knew from the start, you've been telling people to get vaccinated and just to be careful. Yeah, I felt like a guilt of like, could I have done more? Should I have done more? And that's just hard. I don't know. That's like hard to look back on. And and I don't want to like, I, I mean, we're at this point, I don't want to fault or point fingers at anyone in my family because it's not going to change anything that's happened. And so I think mostly now it's like me thinking or being frustrated too at myself because I don't know, you know, what else like I could have done or should have done. So my grandmother had gotten admitted December 13th and the next day, like we were trying to figure out, like I was on three-way calls with my family, like all day the next day, you know, and trying to get updates from the doctor and trying to get information And they just kept saying that her condition was so bad. She has COVID pneumonia. She's sick all over her body. The nurse told us that she was hovering at the point of having to be intubated, that her oxygen had been trending down. You know, and my grandmother had had done a directive and she didn't want to be intubated. She wanted limited intervention. And so that was most of the conversations we were having. It was just something I had never seen. I just felt like, seeing her with the mask on her face, seeing her in that hospital bed. She just looks so tiny and so, like, especially fragile. I don't know. I mean, the mask took up almost her entire face. Seeing that was just, I think that's why when my sister Crystal and I first walked in, we just started sobbing. At that point, my family they had all tested positive for COVID. And so when the hospital was like, if someone's COVID positive, we can't have them come. Like they can't come say goodbye. And that was really difficult. We came up with a list because we were like, we want to be able to FaceTime everybody, you know, from the room so they can say goodbye or talk, you know, be able to speak to her. And it was so heartbreaking, I think, to not only have our own goodbyes, but to hear every single goodbye from my family. It was just like our hearts breaking over and over. My family was telling my grandmother just how strong she was and how much she did for us. And like one of my cousins was telling her, you know, now you can sleep, like now you can go to sleep and telling her it was okay. My uncle telling her like how much he had done, how grateful he was for the mother that she was. And my niece Maria telling her like my niece is pregnant. And I think that's one of the ones that really got us because her baby's due next month. 
And my grandma raised her. And so she was like, it hurts that you're not going to be able to meet my daughter. And that one really got us. And then, you know, my sister telling her, like, she's a chingona, like, she's a badass. And she created an army of badasses, which she did. And uh, and I think the, that's that one really got me, too. And it was, I don't know, I was just telling her how strong she was and how much she meant to us. I felt grateful to not be alone. I quarantined with my sister, Crystal, because we had both been in that COVID ICU. I remember we really didn't sleep. We cried most of the night. We told stories about my grandmother. We played music. We played a lot of Vicente Fernandez. I don't know. And I think we needed it. I feel like we needed to, to cry and let it out. And I, and I feel like it was what all my family was feeling. What happened the day of your grandma's funeral? That was really difficult. Like, I think being in the church, you know, it was shocking to me to see that they were still doing communion. Like, everyone was taking their masks off and getting communion. And then I think seeing other relatives not wearing masks in the church and who weren't vaccinated. And it was a source of frustration, I know. And it, and it was a topic among some of my cousins. My sisters and I didn't get up and get communion. A few of my cousins didn't either. I just didn't feel comfortable. I, I didn't want to take off my mask. The day of your grandma's funeral, you tweeted out that your sister finally agreed to get vaccinated. Uh, what, what did she tell you? Yeah, so on the way to the cemetery, actually my sister, Crystal, and I were in the same car and my other sister was in a different car, but we were on the phone the entire time. We had had a lot of discussions prior and we almost kind of got into it a little bit before, like before the funeral in the wake. And then we moved past it. She was already dealing with another loss, like her son's father's cousin, like had died of COVID. I think maybe like a few like days after my grandmother had. And she was just shocked because he was her age and it really worried her. And so then, you know, her son also was telling her he really wanted her to get vaccinated because he was scared for her. And then when we were all in the car and we were on the phone with her, Crystal and I were just kind of like bringing it up again and and kind of saying like, you know, we should just go and I, I think it would be good. And then Topaz was like, you know, I, I'll go. Like, I will go if you guys come with me. And we said, yeah, we would. And so right then and there in the car, I made the appointment. So you went on to write a beautiful article about your grandmother's passing. It was really touching. And you were really honest about all these factors leading up to her death. And this article came out as your family was putting your grandmother to rest. What was your family's reaction? I feel like there was this feeling that it was putting out my family's business and how I shouldn't do that. And it was me hearing secondarily about others who were really upset and were really bothered about what I had written and really bothered about, I guess, me being honest about the division that was happening in the family. And before the story ran, I mean, I I had my sister read it because my grandmother was like a mom to her. I had my mom read it because I I wanted them to know what was coming. I had my niece read it like because, again, my grandmother raised her. And it was a big thing for me. Like the piece for me was a tribute really to my grandmother. And I felt like that is not how it was taken by some. And and that's the thing. I mean, it was just so split. I mean, those in my family who were vaccinated, you know, were loved it, like thought the piece was great, you know, didn't didn't have an issue with it. But that was really split depending on who it was. And I mean, my sister, she's unvaccinated, but she wrote me and she was like, we don't see eye to eye, but I love the piece. Like I felt like, it really honored our grandmother. I just think that some people in my family are so entrenched in like, you know, their anti-vax beliefs 
that putting something out that's even in any way kind of suggesting that like my our grandmother should have been vaccinated or, you know, like that was seen as an attack. I think looking back on these two years, I think these are the hardest two years I've had in my life. It's been terrible to be out reporting and to see, you know, firsthand, like people, you know, who have died of COVID or, you know, people who've lost loved ones and were in similar situations as my family. I think that was the hardest thing for me was to see that lived reality. And that reality was the same for my family. And I don't know, I think I'm going to look back and feel like sad because we could have done more. We could have pushed more. We could have had more conversations. And I think for me, getting my sister or making my sister that appointment for to get her vaccine, like I teared up in the car because it felt like a moment. It just felt so important. Like it felt so meaningful, especially heading to the cemetery. It meant so much to me to have made that appointment because if, even if it's just one person, that's like one less person who might get really sick or who might die. Brittany, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Okay, I'm back with my colleague, Alejandra Reyes Velarde, who we heard from earlier. And Alejandra, just about all the damage that Latinos have faced with COVID. And what's really sad is that all this devastation clashes with the phenomenon called the Latino health paradox. Yeah. You know, one researcher told me that in 2017, Latinos had over three years longer life expectancy compared to white people, which is a huge advantage. Three years is is a lot when we're talking about life expectancy. That illustrates what the Latino paradox is. It means that Latinos, despite having so many more obstacles in their way, for example, lack of health insurance or health issues like diabetes, they tend to live longer than white Americans and health Experts don't know why. It goes completely contrary to what you would believe. And it's pretty much a mystery. And And this pandemic has kind of put into question whether that paradox will hold. During the pandemic, Latinos actually lost life expectancy at a rate three to four times higher than white Americans. Yeah, but then part of that Latino paradox is the second generation, the children of the immigrants, those children lose that advantage, if you will, of the better health that their parents had, and they just become as unhealthy as other Americans. Yeah, I think that's a trend that health officials are observing. It's kind of a mystery. There there might be something about the immigrant experience, the resilience of the immigrant that maybe contributes to better health outcomes. But, you know, this, that's all just speculation, and, and really we don't know. Yeah, and Latino immigrants traditionally got less sick or lived longer, but then COVID comes in and just destroys all of that. And you see the, you know, all this just devastation with Latinos as, you know, we're both reporters who happen to be Latinos who have covered COVID-19 among Latinos and who have had to deal with our own family members to deal with the disease itself and its effect on us. So how have the past two years been for you? It's been, I mean really stressful, just like for everybody else. Um, I'm lucky that no one in my immediate family has gotten seriously sick. 
Uh, but my mom, you know, she's a housekeeper at an assisted living facility. I worry about her still every day. My dad lives in Mexico and he, you know, I, I, I'm not there every day to kind of say, put your mask on, put your mask on. And he hasn't gotten his booster shot yet just because they're not as widely available yet in Mexico. My brother works at CVS and he, um, you know, is interacting with customers who don't wear their masks or are not as safe. So, I mean, I just like everybody else, I, I'm worried every single day, but um, grateful kind of to not have lost anybody in my family. And this project has been really emotional because I kind of think a lot about how, you know, I see myself in these families and my family has been in every step that these families have been in. So I think a lot about what would have happened if, if I didn't have this job, for example, have the security or be able to take my mom to the doctor um, or my brothers to get tested. Um, and what would have happened if this pandemic came at a different time for us? Alejandra, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Gustavo. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, how pandemics end, a street vendor crackdown in California, and a Black Latina activist on the U.S.-Mexico border. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brosalian, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Lauren Rabb and Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back next week with all the news on Desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>